Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you on iTunes, uh, Google Play, Stitcher, as well as with video here on YouTube, uh, where you're seeing that uh, I am joined this week. We're going to get right into this because I'm very excited to have John Atak back on board. Hi, John. Welcome to the show. Hi, Chris. Always good to see you. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is going to be great. I have so many questions for you. Uh, it's been a while since we've caught up, and you've been a busy little beaver, and uh, you've been, been doing some things about things that I'm actually very curious about. I wanted to discuss first off, um, you have been uh, going around to some various conferences and talks in Europe about cults, cult influence, uh, extremist groups. Can you talk about that? Yeah, sure. Uh, in um, April, I was over in Rotterdam, at a, a meeting hosted by the Radicalization Awareness Network, which is a Europe-wide initiative. Um, it was co-hosted by a group called Exit. Um, you've you talked with my, our friend Robert Arell. Yes, we've done a podcast with him. I'll put a link to that below so people can, can see my interview with Robert on that. Yeah, and they're basically dealing with um, extremist, viol- violent extremist groups, largely right-wing. They don't, we don't seem to have much much of a problem with violent left-wing stuff in Europe at the moment. Um, that does so, happen over here a little bit, though. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and they'll also, of course, be dealing with neo-Nazis, with white supremacists, with with, with these various groups. Yeah. Most, they've been around for years, and they've been putting together programs to help um, people who've been radicalized to, to deal with that. Um, so there were people from all over Europe uh, who are involved in the probation service, in the prison service, in, in counseling, uh, in counterterrorism. And they, it was great. They do this thing, about 40 people there. And you go off into breakout groups for sort of 15 minutes to discuss something and then come back and talk about what you found. Now, um, I was there because of uh, Rod and Linda Dubre marshall I went and gave a talk at Salford University for their master's course on coercive control. And um, they said, oh, uh, ICSA, International Cultic Studies Association, has, I think we have an extra ticket that we can put you into Rotterdam. And would you like to go there in two weeks' time? So I moved my schedule around and went. And I'm very glad I did. Um, Then there was another meeting the next month in Lisbon. And here you had some of the prevent people from the UK. Now, PREVENT is the government-backed initiative to alert people, particularly kids, to the, to the problems of uh, radicalization. And um, it, was, it was very interesting to come to them from, from our world, because the first thing that we grab hold of is social psychology. The first thing that we, we look at is, you know, Solomon Ash, um, Sharif, uh, through Zimbardo, Milgram, what have you, these, these guys and what they did. And then we, we look at things also through the lens of clinical psychology and you know, how you counsel people, how you help people, the best ways to do that. And this is kind of missing from their world. That they really? are, they're teaching people about, um, they, I mean, they're not missing the, the clinical part in that they are counseling people and they, you know, they use... Um, motivational interviewing techniques and, and this sort of thing. But they, you know, for me, the first thing to, if I can teach anybody anything, is, is to teach them about group identity, which you know, they understand very well, but then to get into the mechanisms that are used to change somebody's thinking, uh, mm-hmm. thought reform. Right. Um, I, I'm, yeah, let, let's not get into the word brainwashing here. Um, thought reform. <laughs> no, I, I prefer thought reform, undue influence. I mean, the, 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 the Lifton's territory is, is more stable ground. I think so. And, and I think that, that the associations are, are, are bad. I mean, okay, we, I said I was not going to get into it. Let's get into it. The word brainwashing <laughs> uh, was introduced to the English language by a man called Edward Hunter. Um, mm-hmm publicly known as a, a journalist and the author yep. of Brainwashing, 
and privately known as a member of a group called the Central Intelligence Agency. And so the hypothesis of brainwashing was introduced to the world as a critique of Chinese communism coming out of the CIA. So you've already got a little bit of a problem that there might be a little bit of, you know, opposition going on that. Uh, uh, only, and, and not to be overly paranoid, but with good reason, because these are the same folks who carried out, and this is a factual thing, there's no conspiracy theory to this whatsoever, these are the folks who, who later carried out MKUltra. And Absolutely. conducted experiments on the public without the public's knowledge. Yeah, and, and they're, they're, they're MK Naomi, uh, the op Operation um, Bluebird, uh, which was US Navy intelligence, was the first of them. That was already functioning before the Korean War in 1949, I think. Um, um, so, yes, you've got a group that is doing these very interesting things, and they want to present this in a certain way. And what has happened is the Chinese expression, the Sinao, which uh, I've mispronounced badly. Um, actually, at least means, you can pronounce it at all. Well, you have a try at it. H I wouldn't even try. I just butcher everything. Yeah, well, let's do that too. H S I N A O, Sinal, um, means the cleansing of the heart. And it's not a term that's original to the Chinese communists. It's a term that's been around for a thousand years at least. And it's a practice within the religion of Taoism that the idea is that you are. Um, awakening yourself to compassion and, and this sort of thing. And now, you know, now that is fascinating. There is so much to unpack in just what you just said because of the techniques that were developed to use that. Yeah. Uh, and it's funny because you mentioned cleanse, it's translated as cleansing the heart because I have read earlier that it was cleansing the brain and that's where they came up with the term brainwashing, but perhaps that was. Oh, uh, that's, that's another confusion. The, the Chinese traditionally believe that thought takes place in the heart. Ah, okay. And so the, okay. Organ, the organ was moved. Uh, okay, it, it, so that you could sort of, from one point of view, legitimately translate it as cleansing the brain if you're thinking that that's the center of your thinking process. Yeah. Whereas we think of the heart as the center of feeling mm. and emotion. Yeah. And, so and it's he, a bit of a cultural divide there. Yeah, neither concept is, is exactly true. But, right. Um, but yeah, the, but the, it's, a, it's a spiritual practice. That, Interesting. Does it, that, I, I ha, I, I'm going to interrupt you as we go. No, I'm just going to yeah. ask you. Absolutely. Uh, does that term, the cleansing of the heart or the cleansing of the, of the thought processes or whatever, does that direct, is that the term they used? in the re-education camps? Well, generally they, they use the term that's, that's translated as thought struggle. And okay. this is an essential aspect of, of the process. What was actually happening in, in the camps um, it, it is that they were taking people and saying, well, look, you have to believe thoroughly in our Chinese way. Yes. Level 42. Uh, you have to... And... What I see, I've spent a lifetime, you know, one of my side interests is Chinese philosophy. So I've made my own gradual translation of the Lao Tzu, which is, you know, is always more important to me than Ron Hubbard. I think it's one of the things that saved me that, that I figured this guy, Lao Tzu, knew it better than Hubbard did. No, no, but himself. Uh, he might have had a few good things to say. I don't know. I, I, I've heard a few good things about him. It's true. Oh, Hubbard talks about Lao Tzu in the Phoenix Lectures. And, yes, he does. Uh, you can tell from his spelling, uh, we, he spells the name of the book Tao de King with a K, and the only other person who does that is Alistair Crowley. Your influences are showing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That, that's where he got his ideas from. But So they would have this, this concept of thought struggle, and the idea is that, that you would... Um, and it's still an aspect of um, Maoist communism, wherever you find it, that you have to get into this process of self-criticism and you have to publicly con confess and denounce yourself. Yes. That's where the thought reform process uh, that Lifton described so accurately, that's where it, where it comes from. And it's a switchover. You know, the, the Confucius, in, you know, about 500 BC, lays down these the analects and this way of living a life, which will dominate China from then on. I mean, he, 
went to his grave with, I think, only five disciples thinking he'd failed completely. <laughs> and to this day, much of Asia is run on Confucian principles. Uh, there, there is a strange comparison that Leo Strauss, the guy who, uh, in the neocon who in, from University of Chicago, who trained Dick Cheney and various other people, he pretty much puts forward a Confucian idea that you have to get the people to believe in a set of rules. And uh, he says it as Confucius did, it doesn't really matter if what they believe in is not true. Uh, well, that's, and, and that is factual. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and Hubbard even, even got into that when he talked about the uh, confusion and the stable datum principle. And, and when he talks about reality being an agreement, he is talking right. about this thing that you, it doesn't matter what the truth is, you can make reality out of agreement. So That's right. Confucius, it, it would appear, is one of many atheists who founded religions. Uh, Lao Tzu, Jiang Tzu, and the Buddha were all atheists, and they all ended up founding religions, which I, I don't think they meant to do, really. But um, you know, we, we have to be very careful, Chris, what we say to people and what we do. Uh, right. It doesn't matter anyway, because somebody will come along and cherry pick. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. History is not kind to originality. It, 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 it craves change and modification and that sort of thing as people. It's the, it's the, it's the historical telephone game. Yeah, it's a Mississippi of lies, as, as, as history is a Mississippi of lies, as Voltaire said. Um, so the, the heart of the Confucian system is the family. Much more so than in, in any other religion or system I know of, the family is, is paramount. And what Mao Zedong set out to do was to transfer your allegiance from the family to the Communist Party. And that's the foundation of the whole thought reform brainwashing process. And it's my other problem with it is that, of course, it was a, a program of physical coercion. You were locked in a cell, you were shackled, you could be starved, you could be beaten. And so if you want to talk about classical brainwashing, that's what it means. Yeah. <clears throat> well, things like that have happened in the uh, dangerous cult groups, such as Scientology, let's mention that name there, you know, that, that um, people who are put on the RPF as RPF, the, the Rehabilitation Project Force's own... Uh, Rehabilitation RPF, Project Force, yeah. They could be chained down, they could be locked in cells, but the process, it, it, I think it's dangerous to associate that very forceful process of brainwashing with the far more subtle uh, social compliance programs and amplification of uh, behavior that happen inside you know, groups like the Moonies or Scientology. Though, of course, with the Moonies, you have this bizarre thing that Sun Myung Moon was actually trained in these processes and ran a group called Victory Over Communism in the early 50s before deciding he was, the, you know, Jesus had failed and, and he was the real Messiah. Which proves well, wrong. You know, that is dead. absolutely no surprise. That I, I'm just going to say right now, it's zero surprise at all. I remember, in fact, uh, Steve Hassan discussing the Korean influence. Uh, you know, and I and I at the time I didn't really totally duplicate or understand the the background on that. And now that I've studied some more about North Korea and its own history, uh, it makes complete sense. And the and I just wanted to also comment on that father figure thing because that's really, really important with the, uh, in China, with the government leaders, you know, taking the place of the father figure. And also that concept directly was taken up uh, by the Kim family in North Korea because that is their entire uh, philosophy is that the head of state is the father of the country. Yeah, and Sun Myung Moon called himself true father. Yes. True father, yes. And, um, you know, and, and it, again, it, it, it's a it's a side route that, that, that people go down. The the idea that the um, head of the cult is a father figure, and that uh, that gives some kind of explanation that we wanted to submit to some parental authority. I've always felt very hesitant about that because I never had that sort of relationship with Hubbard. Um, it, it, he seemed to me fallible and human. Mm -hmm. And uh, while I, I didn't particularly question his, uh, you know, I was a devoted believer, um, I, I was quite willing to make jokes about him. And, um, 
you know, and, and regard him as human. And it, it's only really on leaving, you know, I mean, the joking and degrading this thing that it was wrong to say anything about Hubbard. That sort of came along. I'd been involved for about six years, I think, by the time that came out, five or six years. And I just disregarded it. It, it just seemed a bizarre thing to do. But there is some truth. People make an attachment to the leader. And as our friend Yuval Laos says, they not only treat the cult leader as a parental figure, they treat the cult as a baby. They treat the cult as their child. So in the same way that you won't, you know, brook any sort of criticism of the ugliness of your little baby, then the, the cult is, the group is protected in the same way that, that you're not allowed to think anything negative about it. And that's self-imposed. It's not because of, it's just a kind of normal relationship. So we do, you know, take authority from above and then, you know, make sure that we're defending the poor little defenseless cult from any criticism or censure, which of course is where critical thinking becomes kind of vital. This, you know, I, I realized I was talking with a friend last year and um, we were talking about cognitive dissonance, you know, the kind of wobbly feeling you have when your, your views are questioned, which is really the foundation of, of much of, of our understanding. Leon Festinger's work, Steve Hassan's bite model, for example, behavior information, thought and emotion control, is a development out of Leon Festinger's work um, in cognitive dissonance. And I kind of, I thought about it and you know, realized that I actually rather like it when people disagree with me. And um, it, it, this, is, this isn't psychological masochism, I promise you. I, I don't <laughs> like it when they're rude to me, you know, and that, you know, and I'll be rude back to them probably because I'm not, not that good a person, really. Um, but it, I, when somebody comes along to me and says, no, I think you're wrong about that, it, for me, it's an invitation not to an argument but to a discussion, to a conversation where I will find something out. Now, you know, John Stuart Mill, The Wonderful On Liberty by John Stuart Mill, which, which is a text all children should read by the age of seven, I think. Um, maybe a little older than that. But his, maybe a little bit older, yeah. I read it when I was about 57, actually. But <laughs> right. I've finally got to it. But what an incredible statement. There's this guy saying, you've got to keep listening to the same idiots talking the same rubbish just to make sure that you're right. You know, you've got to keep always testing the boundaries to see if, if, if you're right. And what will happen is you have a conversation and, and hopefully in a conversation, a discussion, all of the people involved will come away with something. And that's quite a good segue back into the Radicalization Awareness Network. Um, but there, there are these discussions and people are then going back to their practice to uh, apply something. And I think that the, because in the counter-cult world, because of, of you know, Steve Hassan, uh, Jolly West, I, I, we can talk about Jolly in a minute if you like. I, I mentioned him on a, on a podcast the other week and, and said that he was a friend of mine. And there was this, oh, he worked for the CIA sort of stuff that, that sort of blew up. And it, it was like, well, I don't know. He was, from 1951 onwards, he was criticizing Ron Hubbard. That's the first time he published about Hubbard. And he spent a lifetime being very public, criticizing methods of thought reform and mind control. So I, I don't think he was actually involved with their programs. I do think he was asked questions about them. And I do think he... Uh, made negative comments and said, you know, I, this is a very evil thing to do and you shouldn't be doing it. So he was talking to, to those people. But uh, John Clark um, and Margaret Singer, they, they brought what they were finding in the field of social psychology, Margaret Singer working with uh, Shine on um, returning POWs from Korea. And she was very early on in the 60s, she was sort of saying, well, it's strange because these POWs are suffering something that's very like what battered wives suffer. You know, this kind of the anxiety that what we now recognize as post-traumatic stress. So she was one of the right. first people to say, hmm, I, I get this thing, I, get, I bet you do too, where people are like, well, you know, I, the group I belong to is different from these other groups. And you've got 3,000 different groups and they're all really different. You go, yes, and they're all composed of human beings who are really similar. I'm sort of proposing something um, and I'm, I, I want to work on this, that one of the problems is that 
with Prevent, say, in the UK, that they've gone into schools and they've taught people about terrorism, which is a very good thing to be doing. But unfortunately, it's left this taste that maybe it's Muslims that are doing this. And so we're seeing a rise in Islamophobia um, because mm. the kids aren't understanding that this is a completely aberrant form of um, Islam, that when you look to the Salafi ideas that have uh, Wahhabism that's come out, that have come out of Saudi Arabia and been promoted with the oil money all over the world, that, that there's a subset within the Wahhabis that is that turned into Al-Qaeda and all of this sort of thing. Now, the Salafis make up about half a percent of all Muslims, and then right. a subset within them. So, And it's really hard in schools to explain nuance to seven, eight, nine, ten, even 12-year-olds. Yeah, uh, so these are very complicated matters, and these groups are, are, are gigantic groups with lots of different subgroups and units, and, and you know, and the groups, and, and this is hard to get across to adults in America. Well, I, yeah. I mean, when Tony Blair was, was uh, keen on going and killing a lot of people in Iraq, somebody asked him if he knew what a Salafi was, and he didn't know the word. Exactly. Um, which is, you know, what are you going to say? The, so my thought, and, and yes, you've got the Sunni and the, the Shiite. That's right. Division. There are the Seveners and the Twelvers among the, the Shiites. There are the followers of the Aga Khan. There are exactly. And, and the only in, you know, in America, you have to make Christian analogies in order for people to get it. Mm. You know, you go, well, look, the Westboro Baptists are, you know, not all Christians, right? Hashtag not all Christians. Like it's not, you know, they don't represent everybody. Mm. You know, and, and everybody can go, oh, the Westboro Baptists. Well, I get who they are. And I get who my idea of Christians is and my local Christian church. And you go, good. So guess what? It's the same in Islam. <laughs> you know, there's groups and there's radicalized, crazy people in some of these groups, but they're tiny little groups and they make a lot of noise and they have very extreme beliefs, you know, and you, and you try to get that across. But, you know, hell, in America, we're still trying to get people to differentiate between Hindus and, and, uh, Arabs and, and you know, and, and uh, the difference between, you know, somebody from India who's Hindu and somebody from Iraq who's, you know, Shiite, and they, they, they think the same thing. You know, they're all towel heads. Yeah, exactly. And you know. after the 7-7 uh, bombings in London in, what, 2005, um, a close friend of mine came to me and said, Muslims should apologize for this. And so my response was, well, Christians should apologize for Waco then. Exactly. You can't have a collective responsibility that runs through the, through the whole, you know, and so as you have Catholics, Orthodox, and Protestants, and then, exactly. you know, the subsets of, of those things, the, the same is true in Islam. So what I would like to see is um, two little sections for, for kids at school. The first would be to teach them how uh, medicine, science, um, washing, um, perfume, how these things came into the West from Islam. Mm -hmm. So if you look to the Crusades in the 12th century, or you look to the, the Spanish, Andalusia, the Spanish Muslim kingdom, we got, you know, we use the word algorithm without right. necessarily realizing it's not about Al Gore. It, it's... It's wherever you have that A-L at the beginning, algebra, alcohol, you're, it's an Arab word. And exactly. The, same, with our, same with arithmetic. Yeah, these, these are concepts. So there was the, the Hindu numbering system, which, which had the zero in it. That is um, Al-Kuwarasi, I think his name was, who gives us algorithms and algebra, um, without which... We wouldn't have computers. You know, there, there are cultural debts we have there. Well, yeah. Quarantine is, is a notion that came from there. A great deal of medical knowledge came from there. The first Western university was in Bologna. The second was the Sorbonne. The third was Oxford. And they, are all of, they were all of them founded to discuss, and, and textbooks tend to say to discuss Aristotle, but that's not true. They were formed to discuss the commentaries upon Aristotle written by Ibn Senna usually called right. Avicenna in the, in the West. Right. 
So, yeah, this is why history is important, folks. <laughs> you yeah. know, and so first of all, understanding that cultural debt, as you say, even our pop music, the love song as we have it, comes through the troubadours, and the word troubadour is an Arab word, and through Guillaume the troubadour. Is. We get Eleanor Raquitaine, who's married to the French king and then Henry II in England, the mother of Richard the Lionheart. Her daughter, Marie de Champagne, gives us the Arthurian legend cycle. Uh, Cotillane de Troyes is writing the stories of Percival and all of this stuff. This cultural revolution that's called the Little Renaissance by some historians is totally stimulated by contact with uh, Islam, which is on the one side has this, you know, fairly warlike sort of aggressive face, which is what people know about, but with what was called the translation movement in Islam, they gathered together everything they could from China, from India, from anywhere, the Greeks, and this was considered the most important project of its time. People were paid if they brought in a text, they would be given its weight in gold to pay for it. And this amazing learning came about in Baghdad, in Damascus, and in Cordoba, in Spain, which was freely given to the West, and upon which, you know, the, if you look to our civilization, the word civilization doesn't seem proper. We had a bunch of Norman thugs who went around basically bashing people on the head, didn't wash, and only ate meat. Um, and that transformation comes there. So I think teaching kids about that, saying, you know, at its simplest way and at its simplest level, and then teaching what happened in the 20th century when the Ottoman Empire collapsed at the end of World War I, the horrible rape of, of the Arab countries by the French and the British. You know, for example, the Lebanon taken by the French, if you weren't Christian, you couldn't vote. Simple, you know. Um, and, land, you know, the House of Swords, Saud, they're just given Saudi Arabia. It's got nothing, you know, and in, dictators were installed in various places. Right. It's probably safe to go up to World War II and then maybe skip on to what happened in Iran, which was that in 1953, Iran was a democracy. Right. And a man called uh, Kermit, no relation to the frog, Kermit Roosevelt, who was related to uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was his nephew, he, under the instructions of Winston Churchill, Prime Minister in Britain, and uh, Dwight Eisenhower, President in the US, overthrows a democracy to put in place the Shah, who Amnesty International has said was the cruelest dictator of the post-Second World War period. So right. why do these people resent America? You know, Exactly. If, and if you don't get that backstory, none of what goes on now makes sense and your ignorance merely propagates the, the cycle. Exactly. And that's why we encourage this stuff. It's not about making out, and I wanna stress this because to me, this is really important. It's not about making history into good guys and bad guys. No. Because that's, that's a, that is a classic trope that, we, that our brains naturally, I think, want to fall into, especially- Black and white thinking. Well, there is that, and, it, and also because of our upbringing. We're raised with stories, we're raised with narratives. We think in narratives best. Yeah. And narratives for us often consist of good guy versus bad guy, the black hat versus the white hat. And this is, this is certainly a Western trope. I don't know if I, I can't speak intelligently about you know, Asia, but I can certainly say in the West that this is a very much a cultural thing. And so we, so we tend to interpret everything we hear and see in, well, is he a good guy or is he a bad guy? Just tell me, is he a good guy or is he a bad guy, right? Is Kim Jong-un a good guy or is he a bad guy? Is, is Lao Tzu a good guy or is he a bad guy, right? And we're always sort of thinking in these, in these, these, these veins. And so when you look at history, you got to kind of put all that aside because all these different people have very, very different motivations. They come from different backgrounds. They have different reasons for what they're doing. And it's not about, you know, it's not always about, I should say. I mean, you know, you're going to look at Hitler. You're going to go, okay, God, the guy was a bad guy. I get it. But, yeah, but, 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 but even there. With, exactly. But even then, if you don't look at German history and you don't H look at what happened. Hitler, Hitler was the first person to enact animal rights legislation yeah. in the history right. of the world. He built German, the German, yeah, Nazi Germany was a very progressive state yeah. uh, socially. You know, and it's a little it's a little difficult to hear that for you know but it's impossible looking at the consequences, the, the horrors that, that came forward. That's but right. The thing is there is always a spectrum. 
Uh, what, exactly. You, you, and correlation does not equal causation. Just because they were progressive doesn't mean that, you know, Nazis, you know, that progressivism equals concentration camps. So these two things don't have to go together. You know what I mean? So you got to really kind of take it to a higher level when you're looking at this stuff. And, and this is important for the education process you were talking about, which I want to, which I want to segue back into now with the, with the kids, because we kind of went off on this historical tangent, but I love going on those tangents because history absolutely. absolutely fascinates me. And it's always about, you know, cause, effect, cause, effect, cause, effect. And, and some of those causes, you, you know, we've been taught some things in the Western world that are not necessarily true. As I mean, also, we've, we're in a generation which for the first time is, is looking at military conquest as possibly not a good thing. But for the first time is saying, well, you know, constant warfare might not be the best way to be. Mm -hmm. And most of the past societies have been, um, you know, warrior cultures. So right. look back and, you know, if you talk about Alexander the Great in Iran, you'll get a very different response. You know, the, the, in Turkey, they still frighten children by saying, you know, if you don't go to sleep, Alexander will get you. you know? Because from their point of view, he was like Hitler. He exactly. devastated an established culture uh, and certainly didn't make things, you know, that much better. Right. Um, in France, they, you know, you'll have this equivocal, I, I like it, you get ad advertisements for, I think it's Courvoisier brandy, and it says, the brandy of Napoleon. And I'm kind of waiting for the schnapps of Hitler, you know. Right, like uh, what? <laughs> because he was a teetotaler and actually lived on amphetamines, you know, just like Ron Hubbard, really. Um, but th this, yeah, what, what you kind of lionizing people for, for their, you know, we, before our Palace of Westminster, our House, House of Parliament, we have a statue of Richard the Lionheart, um, who was mentioned earlier as the son of Eleanor of Aquitaine. And there's this guy who, in a single day, put to death 2,000 captive civilians because the ransom money was late. Right. So you kind of go, well, when we say king, you know, doesn't that mean the same as dictator? You know, aren't we, you know, so our whole view of history is, is slanted and we need to be looking, you know, more at the kind of Marie Curie figures in history who, you know, actually, you know, Darwin, people have actually contributed something. Exactly. Uh, what have you. And even there, we have to be very careful because these contributors, uh, Galileo or, or Newton, they are really unpleasant human beings. You know, we, we mustn't get too romantic about this. That, you know, Newton was, was the most narcissistic person imaginable, did very little scientific work after his 20s, even though his work was brilliant and spent okay. most of his time trying to find the code in the Bible that would show him the proportions of Solomon's temple because they would be the proportions of the universe. And we think of him as, yeah, he was this rational scientific guy. You know, <laughs> right. like, you know he was also an alchemist, of course, and you know, he spent exactly. more time doing that than science. But the thing is to be able to look at the subtleties and not, as you say, have this good, evil sort of distinction. And you know, there are more than 50 shades of gray in between exactly and and i don't want to and i don't want to get across the wrong idea here either because i'm not trying to apply moral relativism to history and say there's no right and wrong that's no, not the argument right and wrong that's a philosophical ethical discussion we can have that discussion it's it's a discussion more people need to be having you know what makes something good what makes something bad um so i'm not trying to throw out the book on on ethics and morality at all I'm trying to say that if you lay that template on top of history, you will unfairly bias your view of cause, effect, cause, effect, cause, effect. And that's all I'm trying to say we should not be doing when we look at things in a purely historical perspective. Yeah. And, and so if, we, if we, we look at the good that Islam gave to the West right. and the evil that was visited upon the Arab states, then it's all part of the package. And I think if our kids could understand that, that would make Islamophobia less. I mean, in the US, I'm told that 80% of your Arab population is actually Christian. But I would not be surprised at all because I know 75% of the general population is Christian. So they're, you know, they're, but they're treated, you know, even having a kind of olive skin after 9 right. 11 became rather difficult there. And, and 
those biases when when you actually sit with people and you know speak with them there was uh, an afghan woman at um one of the meetings i went to and uh, she'd grown up largely in denmark and um when her dad found that that she was being radicalized by her boyfriend he sent her back to afghanistan he said go go to afghanistan for six months and see what's happening there and then come back and there was something quite remarkable in the story because she was saying that her dad had come from afghanistan with the culture of afghanistan which is oppressive towards women uh which is not true throughout islam either but the culture he came from was and that the danes had a program to help integrate people coming in and he realized that his attitude was wrong you know so wow. a little bit of understanding can help she came back from six months in afghanistan and said i get it you know we, we don't want to be doing this i, I mean there was a guy I, um from austria and and he was saying that um that there'd been a he he had a client a young man who had seen some material about the way palestinians were being treated in israel and he wanted to go there and kill jewish people that that was what he presented and this social worker sort of okay what do i do with this and I thought he was really clever because what he did was, well, you want to help Palestinians, right? And he, over, over a course of probably weeks, he got him round to this point where he was like, that, yeah, that is what I want to do. So he was like, well, um, the, the, the um, Red Crescent, the uh, Muslim equivalent of the Red Cross, uh. um, why not do something to help, to give money to them? So the guy ended up baking cakes, selling the cakes and giving the money to the Red Crescent. So it's taking, you know, the the need to help and, and getting that stimulated and taking yeah. the need to harm. And that's the and that right there is a is a brilliant example of how you, you know, how thought reform can can work and how education can counter it. Mm -hmm. You know, how you can have a, you know, you have a guy who thinks that by going and killing a bunch of people, he's going to be doing good. He's going to be saving the world. He's going to be making things better. You know, I, I, I've said this before that I think that I think one of the most dangerous things for the world is, you know, is young people who think they're saving it. And by that, of course, I'm talking about, you know, when you get convinced that you're going to save the world in, in these cults, you know, that you become an extremely dangerous person. I mean, that's, that's right on the edge of radicalization right there. Yeah. And you know, and here you have this guy, but then this social worker takes that, takes that whole, you know, purpose and goes, oh yeah, but just, just, just over here, just a little bit, you know, and the guy goes, oh really? I can help by doing this? And you go, yes. And the guy goes, oh, well, all right then. You know, that's, that's, that was brilliant. That's really good. Yeah. I, I mean, and, and looking, I mean, I was in my twenties when I, you know, Margaret Thatcher came to power in, in Britain. And I started wondering and kind of going, she's a very idealistic person. You know, she has this, you know, she's the first scientist prime minister, first and last so far that we, we've ever had. She was a chemist. Um, I did not know that. I think yeah, that, I knew that and I forgot it. I, I, I didn't have that. I don't have that association with her. We, she, she led the ban on uh, CFCs, fluorofluorocarbons, because she understood you know how they would impact upon the ozone layer. So, um, good that, for her. That was great, but that education meant that she had no education in the humanities. And so, as the great documentary maker Adam Curtis points out in his brilliant Power of Myth, analyzing Margaret Thatcher and what went on there, she believed the Churchillian myth. You know, the idea that Winston Churchill had put forward about, you know. Britain, Britain was once this perfect place, kind of the golden age myth, and we've got to return to it. Um, oh, how, how great America is, or, or not at this point. Well, that's that's kind of a yeah, it's the make America great again. Yeah, when was ideal. it great? And I refuse to subscribe to the whole idea that America's never been great, and America sucks, and America's just a horrible no, place. No, I, don't, I don't go there any more than I go that America is the most wonderful place in the world, and it's Marshall Plan and guns. I I think both ends are are off. I think there's 
you know, a middle road there that 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 actually more reflects reality. Yeah, and 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 America, America's contribution to the world from the Bill of Rights, which remains exactly. the most potent human documents. Um, you have both sides. You have the the attempted genocide of and successful genocide of, of certain Native Americans. Many tribes yep. were destroyed completely. The Cherokee on the Trail of Tears lost a, you know a quarter. The smallpox blankets. The idea of introducing this thing to these communities deliberately. The, the largest. Ah, uh, it's just pure evil. Well, it's them, it's them and Genghis Khan with with throwing plague-ridden bodies into the enemy. That this use of biological warfare. Um, these terrible things, and then at the other end, you see the ideals of America and the the development of America, the workers' rights as they developed through the 20th century, the New Deal, which yep. sadly failed because the Nas National Association of Manufacturing proved to be better at PR. Um, but, but the ideal of you know of getting rid of trust busting under Theodore Roosevelt, the idea of not having the super rich in control, which was so important politically and didn't quite make it because, you know. Um, no, we're kind of back to that oligarchy model. We're, we're, we're definitely yeah. have moved all the way over there and we need to bring that pendulum back somehow. It's phenomenal. I mean, no, Naomi Klein says that um, when Ronald Reagan became president in 1980, the average CEO of an American corporation earned 40 times what the average blue collar worker. But when she was reporting this in 2001, uh, it was 411 times. That right. was just in 20 years. It had expanded tenfold, and you then get the hedge funds and all these things. But if you look at the Marshall Plan, if you look at, you know, I think Donald Trump was quite right when he criticised Europe for not making proper contributions to NATO, because America, the US, has carried the defence of of Europe since World War Two, and uh, you know. So America's done so much that's good, and then on the other end, you've got the CIA. Exactly. You can make the case for the good, you can make the case for the bad, or you can just kind of look at both and go, oh, maybe maybe let's talk reality. Yeah. You know? Exactly. Yeah, let's, let's talk what actually happened and, and be a little concerned about the amount of fervor that is aroused by... Right. You know, um, exactly. So how does this how does this feedback to the <laughs> we're we're going off on all these wonderful tangents from the educating the kids I I'm, I want to get back to that because I'm I'm very interested in that. Well, the the, the first two things that, that you teach you know what Islam Islamic culture contributed to Christian culture. Um, I'm very passionate about that. I'm fascinated by the history of that period. Um, and, and the, you know, the transformation of Europe that occurred in the 12th and 13th centuries as a consequence, you know, we got university education, we got hospitals, we got all sorts of great things going on and the developments of mathematics, which would underpin the scientific revolution. In fact, if, if you look at the people who are called the originators of science in, in Europe, like Roger Bacon or Duns Scotus, they were pupils of Islamic teachers. You know, there is no doubt the link is, is direct. Isn't that uh, interesting? Also, Islam was way more tolerant that, that you could be Christian or Jewish, the religions of the book. Uh, you had to pay a tax, but you could do that. Whereas the, the routine in, in Europe was about every 50 years to kill some, you know, a ghetto of Jews to, you know, these, these appalling pogroms again and again and again. They were protected until, of course, the Nazis sent their emissaries into the Arab countries before the Second World War and started pushing out propaganda against the Jews, some of which is still repeated in those places. Right. Um, but so that's the first part. The second part is to show the damage done to this, this, this culture by the West uh, inflicted upon it. Those are not really my remit, though. That's not, you know, I, I know something about these things out of curiosity, but I'm not a historian. And that, but there should be a simple way of doing that. The third part, which is the part that is where the Open Minds Foundation um, becomes significant, is that I've watched the countercult movement for 35 years now, been in, involved in it fairly actively. And what, what we're doing is, is we're up against the tide of, of these things and trying to deal with recovery, trying to help people to 
you know, get over the trauma of the abuse that they suffered. That's right. Often, you know, often the first stage is, you know, 10 years of getting them to realize that, that they were abused, you know, that getting past that, you know, that the behavioral transformations they went through in the cult group were not necessarily to their benefit. And some of them right. may have been, but, but very often not. And very, just looking at the amount of money that is screwed out of people and the way that the horrific way that's done. Um, so it, it's, seemed to me that it was pretty much a losing battle, frankly, because the cults persist. They you know the main targets of the 70s are gone. Scientology is eating itself now. Um, the Moonies seem to have retreated back into Asia. Uh, the Krishnas fragmented and ended up giving out a lot of their money in settlements for abuse. The Way International, what way international? The Jesus Army. Those groups are gone, but new groups have replaced them. There are as many right, people. Because you get Nexium, for example, this thing we just heard about with the branding. Or, uh, Freedom of, yeah, Nexium is, you know, yeah, where the, the leader is having his initials branded on the mons pubis of female followers. What yeah. a disgusting human being. Ah, absolutely uh, gross. And he's and he's literally lingering in jail right now as we're talking. Yes. You know. Yeah, and, which is a good place. Thankfully for him. so. Yeah. Um, so you have you have the groups like that that continue and, and had tremendous influence because you've got very wealthy people who've been gulled into following him. But then you have things like Molyneux and Free Domain Radio, that the internet cults. We're also seeing a lot more of the small cults and the, you know cults that will have a hundred or two hundred members and they're below the radar. I, you know, back in well, it's about 1991. I kind of, I'd, I'd written a piece of blue sky and put that out there and was kind of going, I think I've had enough of Scientology. I'd like to do something else, please. And I started thinking about preventative approaches at that point, which was, you know, developed finally into the Open Minds Project. And this sort of, well, why don't we uh, teach kids about, you know, exactly what you're doing with, with, with your work, teach them about critical thinking, Yep. Teach them about um, social, you know, compliance, um, and teach them about thought reform, the amplification of disorder that occurs with thought reform. Teach them about hypnosis or guided imagination, as I prefer to call it. Um, and you know, if you add into that, we're very keen on our Chalef's intelligent disobedience um, and his beautiful little video, the which is blink, think. Uh, choice voice put those four words into a search engine you'll get this wonderful three and a half minute video which is designed for five-year-olds so well that you will also find in the link below on the description of this video because i'm going to check i'm going to pull that up and, and put that on here so people can check that out yeah and his his book intelligent disobedience which is is just it's so readable it's so you know direct it, it, there's no psycho babble in it he's putting forward really important ideas that could immensely change our culture for the better if we weren't obedient, if we were taught to be able to assert ourselves and to question, you know, to uh, disagree agreeably, then... Sounds brilliant. You start with that. Now, then what I would, what I'd want to develop and, you know, would, would that we had the money to do it. And so if there's anybody out there who's got a million dollars, they'd like to do something good with. I think we actually need... not kidding, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Half a million would do. Um, we we're working on a project to do little uh, videos which will have a narrative in them, uh, which will have some drawings initially, and once we we've got some cash, we'll animate. That rather than being a kind of didactic teacherly sort of thing, can just go out onto YouTube. And as long as we do what we're doing well, following the example of, say, the Khan Academy or um, right. uh, School of Life, Book of Life, um, that's something that, that kids will go straight to. And if you can get to the adolescents, um, then you can change the culture. And, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. I, I would say an ounce of prevention is worth about a ton of cure. You know? I would agree with you. There's 
So we want to teach people, I mean, you'll find it on the website. We have the material there. It's now translating that material. Uh, you know, my job was to make the, the psychology comprehensible, which psychologists are not necessarily very good at doing. Um, no, they're not. They like their they like their phraseology. You know, you you get into a jargon that becomes a loaded language in exactly terms that that if that you know the less you know, the more important it is to dress it up in big language. You know, um, and yeah, you get these people who are not necessarily giving you any insight because the importance is their authority. That's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is that as you develop an understanding, you will tend to need precise terms. And that can make you, you know, into a priesthood, into a remote thing. So my job the last 20 years or so has been to take concepts like cognitive dissonance and put them into English. Yep. Now the job is to make that accessible to teenagers. Um, rather than trying to, you know, Hopefully, as our website develops and as we were able to do these things, there will be a route through the website so that a, a kid can come to it and they can go through a pathway. A teacher can come to it and say, well, I want to make lesson plans out of this and, you know, we can do that. But the thought is to have a site that where you can start with a five-year-old. You can start a little video game for a five-year-old about right and wrong or, or something. Um, actually saying that, my, my granddaughter, who is five, ran off with this book i can see it which, uh, which i rather like um mm. this came out of the skeptic society and um it's just really great it's got these little drawings in it very nice right movie. there right there you're teaching nuance yeah right there you're teaching shades of thinking just maybe yes maybe no yeah that alone it introduces the entire concept of of, of nuance yeah and, and which, which speaks against the divisiveness of our society. The, right. You know, exactly. Because when, when you teach kids in absolute terms, then you can't really be surprised when they start thinking in absolute terms and they start yeah. thinking abs, in absolute extremist ways. And, yeah. and, it's, and we don't really want that, even though it's, you know, it's tough. It's difficult to... to work your way through that, you know, how do we do this and how do we do it right? Because you want, you know, people, especially religious people, have these very absolute ideas. There's right and there's wrong. There's good and there's bad. We don't want to teach everybody that it's all just a bunch of maybes. And you go, okay, yeah. You, you know, you want to make the sides clear. You want to show that there is a spectrum and that this side of the spectrum may be more beneficial than this side of the spectrum. Okay, sure. But you still got to get across this concept that there is a spectrum, hmm. and you don't want to wait till college to do it. <laughs> you know? No, it, 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 and and I think you know there's been so much work, particularly in the U.S. People um, like Matthew Lippman, who gave up his professorship in philosophy at Columbia because he said by the time they get to me at 18, it's too late. Yeah, and so you. I mean, yeah, and we see it, and we see too many examples. I don't want to say it's 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 you know all over the place. I don't want to make some case that you know that 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 it's all over with and lost, and there's no hope. But we do see too many examples of extremist thinking at university levels, and unfortunately, yeah. the examples of some professors, you know, reinforcing that rather than dealing with it properly. And you've also the moral relativism you you mentioned before that the, the yeah. postmodern deconstruction this this bizarre idea that any opinion is as valuable as any other opinion exactly well, as an opinion yes as a fact no uh, einstein's opinion about gravity i'm afraid was significantly more developed than mine right. he, he understood exactly. the uh, curvature of space-time whereas that leaves me baffled um so it, it it's that and it, it's Bringing kids into the debate, I'm very interested in uh, the work of Ken Robinson, who, who's an educationalist, who he's British, but um, he worked on major programs here before moving to the US. Um, he's written a book, I think it's called Creative Schools or Creative Schooling, where he talks about the standards movement, this idea of SATS tests and all of, all of this going on, that's largely 
for the benefit of politicians to be able to say that literacy has gone up by 0.01% or something. And he talks about the hundreds of schools that have broken away from the standards movement and have much better academic results. Uh, there there's that great episode in The Wire, I think it was in the fourth series of The Wire, yes. where they in school and the kids are just being taught the answers to the SATs. They've got no yes. idea what they're connected to. Now, that's right. I've just been through a serious parallel experience to that because my 16-year-old son is just finishing his exams at school. And he, he went, in fact, to the Khan Academy to look at biology. And he came away and he said, oh, all of these things, which I've been taught at school, it's like, you don't need to know that now. Just, and he does need to know that now. So where Khan will actually explain why this is so. So he's right. going through much more advanced biology and he wants to study biology more deeply anyway because he's not followed the standards movement way of memorizing information and being able to regurgitate it, which is, is a pain. You know, you should have your calculators, you should have all your formulae. Uh, you know, Einstein famously failed the Edison test, the test to, to be able to go and work for Edison. He sat it and failed it. And when asked about it, he said, I couldn't tell you what the speed of light is off the top of my head. <laughs> Why do I need to know that? That's in the book, you know? Right. Exactly. And so we've, we're Funny. creating technologists rather than creative scientists often. In right. Our, right. Yeah. Well, John, this is, as always, this has been absolutely fascinating. I, you know, I, I try to keep my shows to about an hour. I mean, you know, you and I, we can get on a roll on this stuff. We can just go for, you know, hours. And some of my viewers are like, yes, please, please do that. But I have to, you know, I got to, I, I have to keep my model in place here, folks. So I, um, I think we've covered some pretty good stuff here. Uh, yeah. And I think we've left lots of food for thought. Yes. I want to, uh, I want to re regroup with you sooner than later mm. uh, to carry on with this, because I have a ton more questions about what's going on in Europe with the uh, cult recovery work and, and education uh, on, on that front, because that's really all preventative medicine, and that is very, very necessary, uh, you know, uh, really globally, uh, but certainly Europe is a great place to start. And, uh, and I think Europe is, a, there's a, a, a lot of controversy right now because of all the immigration and the cross-culturing that's going on and the, you know, the mixes and stuff. And, and so there's, there's maybe a bit more, you know, there's some, there's some tension there, I know. And sure. So, and there's a fundamental difference in the approach to cults. After Scientology destroyed the cult awareness network in the United States, and how fascinating that you can ring up the cult awareness network and be told that the word cult is not a bad word by yeah, Scientology exactly. fighting against it for all this time. But after the cult awareness network went, it left the International Cultic Studies Association, uh, the American Family Foundation, as it was, on its own. And as an academic um, setting with with some very bright people like you know Benjamin Zablocki for example or, or um, we, we have Alexandra uh, Stain here uh, who I know would love to talk to you soon um, so it's brought together some very good academics to talk about cults but it's not actually got any funding to do anything in Europe under FECRIS the Council of Europe uh, funds information services the only exception to that is Britain where sadly the money went to a, a cult apologist, and uh, which we still not quite, and then, then they stopped the money and didn't give it to anybody else. But if you go to France, if you go to Belgium, all around Europe, they funded uh, cult information. And I'm, I'm sure it's, it's, had a, you know, it, it's had an effect. Now we need to go a bit further and, and change the way we think about this. And accept, you know, as Margaret Singer said, that cults are in our midst. And we are in the midst of cults that, that our political parties, I mean, we saw that right. with the Democrats and Republicans, they've become, you know, who are they representing anymore? Um, they, they are that, you know, I remember uh, Kissinger said, you know, very disappointed that he couldn't be president because he wasn't born in the US, um, unlike Barack Obama, of course. Um, and he, at that time, said the other thing is that you need to have $23 million. Now it's a billion dollars if you want to be president. Now, that doesn't say democracy to me, and it does say 
elitist. And as soon as you're talking about elite groups, you're talking about cult groups. You're talking right. about something right. that is wrong that, that we could do something about by changing our attitudes and the attitudes of people around us. Exactly. Perfect. Thank you, John. Yep. Pleasure, Chris. All right, man. We will talk again soon, folks. Any questions, comments, feedback, leave it in the uh, comments section here on YouTube or at sensiblyspeaking.com. Also consider supporting my channel through Patreon. Uh, links below. Uh, you guys are the ones who keep this channel going and keep me able to produce this content. So uh, help me out with that. All right, guys. I will see you guys next week again, John. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure. Uh,